Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, I'll be chatting with a physicist whose experiences working on gravitational wave detectors inspired him to co-found a company that takes a novel approach to creating test and measurement equipment. But first, we delve into the elusive Unruh effect, the curious quantum mechanical prediction that an accelerating object is bathed in a warm glow of radiation that bubbles up from empty space. The Unruh effect has been in the news recently, with physicists at the University of Waterloo in Canada reporting that the elusive phenomenon could be observed by accelerating electrons in a state-of-the-art microwave cavity. This latest research has piqued our interest in the Unruh effect here at Physics World. So I'm very pleased to be speaking with the physicist Morgan Lynch of Seoul National University in South Korea, who's done much research on the Unruh effect. Hi, Morgan. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Morgan, first things first, can you give our listeners a simple explanation of what the Unruh effect is? Well, broadly speaking, uh, the Unruh effect states that if you are uh, in empty space, just out in the middle of space somewhere, and say in a rocket ship, and you press the thruster for your rocket and begin accelerating, that even though you're in empty space, what you would see is essentially a thermal bath of particles kind of effervesce out of the vacuum. And so when you were once sitting in just empty space in the middle of nowhere, as soon as you start accelerating, it's almost as if you're immersed in a warm bath of particles, which are essentially kind of quantum fluctuations, which are being brought to uh, a a, a high temperature by the acceleration. And so it enables you to feel these kind of uh, thermalized quantum fluctuations by simply accelerating. I see. And, and I think like a lot of uh, effects that are related to, um, to relativity, th- this isn't something that you're going to experience when you're, when you're driving your car and, and you put your foot down. Uh, wh- wh- why is it, is, is it something that physicists have not been able to, uh, to observe or, or really struggle to observe in nature? Well, the, the, the main stumbling block with, with observing these things is the fact that uh, for a given acceleration that you have, the temperature that comes from it, the temperature of these quantum fluctuations is quite low. In fact, it's very small. As an example, for just one G of acceleration, which is what we feel here on Earth, the, uh, the UNRU temperature that we would feel from these particles is about a billion times colder than a Bose-Einstein condensate, which is the coldest things that we've ever been able to produce in, uh, in the lab. So it's uh, it's incredibly small temperatures uh, for conventional accelerations. And so that has been the main main stumbling block is producing large enough accelerations so that we can actually sense these things. And so it's, it's a very cold effect. Yeah. And, and last year, you and your colleagues at um, Technion in Israel reported the observation of the Unruh effect in a crystalline material. C- can you give us a, a simple description of, of your experiment and, and tell us what you saw? Absolutely. So this was, a, this was an experiment carried out by the NA63 collaboration at CERN. Um, uh, this is the, uh, under the, uh, the, the, the principal investigator of this experiment is Professor Ulrich Ugerhoge of Aarhus University in Denmark. 
And what was really interesting about this experiment is it wasn't actually designed to probe or look for the Unruh effect. What they were looking for was a related phenomenon known as radiation reaction. And what, broadly speaking, radiation reaction is um, if I take a charged particle like an electron and I accelerate it, right? We have acceleration in these systems as well. Uh, they will emit photons. And radiation reaction is the recoil or kick produced by the photon emission. Okay, and so this has actually been a, a, a you know the Unruh effect is about fifty years old or going on fifty years old, and the problem of radiation reaction dates back to I think the late eighteen hundreds. It's one of the oldest problems in physics uh, to pursue this, and so the NA six three collaboration was pursuing this effect. Okay, and uh, they were actually successful in this, right? And what they did though was um, they took a positron beam, okay, and they fired it into samples of silicon crystal. Okay, uh, and it, uh, specifically, what they were looking at is a single crystal wafer of silicon. And what the single crystal means is that the atomic sites of the silicon in the crystal are in a regular array; they're not randomly oriented. And so, what you can do is take the crystal and align it along the beam so that you can fire the positron beam down essentially an axis of symmetry, which uh, uh, shoots it right through the, the, the basically like a hollow waveguide of the atomic sites produced by the crystalline lattice. And as it goes through, the uh, positrons will oscillate back and forth. Okay, as they bounce off the walls and emit radiation. And this is what's known as channeling radiation. Okay, and due to the particularities of this experiment, as it's oscillating back and forth and building up, uh, it's not emitting photons each time it hits. It builds up photons bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually one becomes so big that when it uh, gets emitted by the positron, you now see this humongous recoil kick uh, from the positron. And it is that acceleration from the kick of this radiation reaction that gives us these large accelerations uh, that can bring about this Unruh effect. And um, what I did, this was during my postdoc down at the Technion, is we were looking at radiation reaction. And my work has been on the Unruh effect historically. And whenever I saw their data set, I was like, oh, I know how to incorporate the Unruh effect into radiation. And the experiment they did was actually quite simple. And so I was able to apply the, the, the Unruh effect theory to this data and it actually fit uh, incredibly well. And so that's how this uh, whole project came about was looking at radiation reaction, but using the acceleration from it, that hard kick from these photons um, to bring about the Unruh effect. And it does look like we were successful in this regard. And I know, uh, Morgan, that you're familiar with the uh, with the research that was done at the University of Waterloo recently. How, how does that tie in with 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 your observations? Is this a, a similar experiment or is it different? It's actually very it's a very clever idea and it's a complementary experiment. Um, you know, like, you know, the CERN uh, facility, and this is a very large piece of machinery. It's essentially one of the largest uh, uh, pieces of, ma of machinery built on by man. I mean, it's, it's, it's like almost our pyramid, you know what I mean? And uh, what the group at, at Waterloo and MIT have done is figured out a way to shrink this whole process down and to uh, create what's called a stimulated version of the Unruh effect. And so the idea is kind of a complementary idea where rather than having these gigantic accelerations from these gigantic experiments, what you can do is have a tabletop size experiment where you have the electron moving through um, now essentially a photon cavity. Okay, so I just have a box with a bunch of photons in it. And the more photons you put in this, the stronger the Unruh effect comes uh, becomes. And so what they can do then is take a single electron and fire it through this, uh, this box of gas and uh, every single photon that's inside of it enhances this Unruh effect. So rather than looking at the enormous accelerations 
produced by CERN, you can look at essentially smaller tabletop size accelerations, but then enhance the effect by filling this cavity with these photons by stimulating the UNRU effect in this regard. And so it's really nice that they have a, a smaller tabletop version of these things where um, uh, uh, they can look at these things from a single particle point of view rather than these large ex- electron be- or positron beams that we see at CERN. Right. And, and am I thinking with the with that Waterloo MIT research, is that is that just a, a proposal at the moment or have they have they done the experiment? So, so far, my understanding is just a proposal uh, at this point. Well, um, uh, their paper has just now been accepted for, accepted for publication, but it's been out for a few months now. And so I imagine, you know, the idea of building the experiment was probably going on even behind the scenes, you know, back when this was originally being thought up. And so. I suspect that uh, that they're most likely working on this, and I'm, I'm hoping they do because I would really like to see what they're doing. They're, they are employing a lot of very clever ideas to bring about this effect, and so uh, uh, I think uh, I think they're probably working, you know, pretty hard on on realizing these experiments. Yeah, you said that uh, that, that you're really keen on on working on the UNRU effect. Um, what, what what are you doing in the future? Are you looking at any data from any other uh, experiments where you could uh, sort of glean evidence for the UNRU effect, or or maybe you're working on designing an experiment? So for me, uh, uh, well, basically, anytime there's some sort of new controversial experiment or new new data set that's out there, the first thing that I think about is the UNRU effect. And so, you know, there was the muon G minus two experiment that came out with that had this anomalous magnetic uh, moment for the muon. And my first thing I thought about was, okay, is there any is there an acceleration in there somewhere that could be causing this or something like this? And so, usually, what I do if the new experiment comes out, I just start asking, what's the acceleration of the system? You know, because because you have to have a large enough acceleration to bring about this effect. And if it's there, then then you can start playing with ideas. Um, uh, so uh, there's no other experiments currently that I'm looking at. But every new experiment I'm made aware of, I will I will think about. Um, uh, but but as I said, like, yeah, CERN at NA63, they have actual multiple data sets. And there's actually more going on right now. As an example, right now, I've been looking at um, uh, what's called the Bekenstein-Hawking area entropy law. Uh, Just like uh, in a black hole case, you can have Hawking radiation emitted. Uh, In the case of the Unru effect, there is what's known as a Rindler horizon. That's uh, essentially when if I have an accelerated observer, there is like a little event horizon that follows behind, you know, and this Unru radiation is where this uh, uh, the Rindler horizon is where this Unru radiation comes from. And uh, so you can start playing with the, the, the area uh, there as you can define areas of this Rindler horizon. And as as matter and uh, energy gets uh, pushed through it, it'll change the area. Just like if you were to throw matter into a black hole, it gets bigger. And so I've been looking at that right now with my uh, uh, my new uh, uh, um, uh, collaborator and PI at, at, at Seoul National University, Uwe Fischer. Uh, we're looking at uh, modified dispersion relations. Uh, what that means is uh, is the speed of light changing in these systems, essentially. And um, uh, so we're looking at that right now using these area entropy laws. So what we're doing is uh, not necessarily looking at new experiments, but looking at these same experiments, but in more and more finer detail and seeing what other physics we can flesh out. And we've had some promising results uh, so far. So there's a, a lot more to come from CERN, I have to say. I think that NA63 actually uh, is uh, has done a, an amazing job on these experiments. And I think there's going to be a lot of physics uh, in the future coming from these guys. Wow, that's great. Well, we love the Andrew effect here at Physics World. So, uh, so we'll look forward to, um, to your future research. I'll put a link to Morgan's paper in the podcast notes. And you can read about the University of Waterloo research on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Warm Glow of Unruh Effect Can Be Seen in the Lab Using Accelerated Electrons. 
Thanks for being on the podcast, Morgan. Uh, Thank you very much for your time. It's been more than 25 years since I worked in a physics lab. But when I visit a lab these days, it's usually very easy for me to recognize much of the equipment that's being used. An oscilloscope or a lock-in amplifier, for example, look very much like the instruments that I used all those years ago. Superficially, at least, this seems to be in contrast with many other technologies, like mobile phones, which have changed by leaps and bounds since the 1990s. To talk about innovation in test and measurement, I'm joined by Daniel Shattuck, who is founder of Liquid Instruments and professor of physics at the Australian National University. He's in Canberra. Hi, Daniel. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Daniel, before we talk about liquid instruments, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? I understand that much of your research career has focused on using optics to measure tiny variations in gravity, including gravitational waves. Yeah, that's right. So my, uh, my career is in really optical metrology, I guess, is the field more broadly that I'm in. But uh, I'm a very goal-oriented person, and and I was very much attracted to the the great measurement challenges of this thing called gravitational wave detection, which uh, back in I guess it was 1996 when I started working in the field as a uh, as a postgraduate student, um, really seemed like this impossibly difficult but amazingly interesting and challenging and uh, and game changing. Uh, pursuit for physics. So, yeah, I, I got into this area. Um, I was very much attracted to the problem-solving side of things of the technology. How do you make the world's most sensitive measurement device ever? Um, met up with a, a really fantastic field of hundreds of other researchers all working on the same problem, which I think made us all feel a little bit less crazy, like we're not not really going out on the limb because look at all these other people doing it, and um, and really worked towards that for for most of my career. Um, and uh, certainly very gratifying when when gravitational waves were finally detected by LIGO and made made all of that worthwhile. Um, but I learned about myself that I was actually interested in the problem solving, perhaps even more than I was interested in the uh, in the ultimate scientific goals. And so, after having spent the first first part of my career uh, searching for these gravitational waves, along with um, what became thousands of others in the field, um, really kind of gave in to to the problem solver within to think how can I not only take the technology and, and use it to detect gravity or gravitational waves, but you know, now that we have that and we spent so much time and effort building that technology, how can we share it with, with the rest of the world to solve maybe some other measurement challenges that we had? And so, yeah, that's really what, what drove me to, to look deeper into understanding this type of measurement technology at a very fundamental scientific level. Yeah, I mean, the detection of gravitational waves was was a phenomenal accomplishment. I mean, it's going to have to go down as one of the great um, bit of physics that was done in the 21st century. And, and, and it's really opened up a whole new field of, of multi-messenger astronomy. You must be really proud of your role in, uh, in, in, in doing it. Yeah, I think it's it's the thing that's really interesting about the way that that science works is you know the first detection as important as that is, and it seems like such a major milestone, and and you can almost hang your boots up so to speak and re- and retire. But 
one thing that we've learned from conventional astronomy is that once we started looking at the night sky, we never stopped. And we built ever more powerful, larger telescopes that can look deeper and deeper into the universe. So it was really exciting to be there at the beginning of the field for that, that first detection. Um, one of the people who really banged our heads against the wall for many, many years trying to figure out how to build these things, how to make them sing. Um, and I think there's a there's an equally interesting period coming up as we we move from the period of first detection as we go into the space detectors as uh, interferometers like LIGO become ever more powerful. There's still so much room for innovation there that it will be an exciting field for years and years to come. Um, not to mention everything that we've we've learned or confirmed about the universe. And and speaking of innovation, you you founded Liquid Instruments in 2014 because you're frustrated with the lack of innovation in the test and measurement industry. What were the problems with kit on offer at the time? Well, it's, it's actually very, um, I think the way that you described it in the, in the introduction was, was very astute. It's really one of those areas that hasn't changed in, in many, many decades. I think that people who, who had used an oscilloscope back in maybe the 1970s or even the 1960s will, will find them familiar today. And uh, I think there's a lot of really interesting things that have happened in the world, um, in the world of how we interact with technology, how we use technology, and um, how technology empowers us to leverage our own abilities and do more, do it faster, and and maybe even enjoy doing it a little bit more. So um, I think the thing that changed for me was that I noticed uh, – as, as I was aging, I was becoming a grumpy old man and I became very frustrated with, with things that I felt wasted my time. We all become busier um, as we progress in our careers. We have more demands in our time. And I noticed that when I would go to the lab, I, I would have this sense of frustration that I wasn't maybe as leveraged as I could be, that I wasn't as efficient as I could be in other areas. Um, and and I, I think the reason for that was really the way that we were doing things, the way that we had to respond and react to our equipment rather than having the equipment respond and react to us. Um, and it was really nothing, nothing more than realizing so many other areas in technology had improved, had adapted. And if we could borrow the best of those ways that users interact with their equipment, that would, that would actually get us a long way. However, there was something a lot deeper, perhaps, that was more fortuitous than planned, which was that uh, in, in my research in gravitational waves, when I moved from the ground-based detectors to the space-based detectors, there was this necessity to change the way that we made measurements. And that necessity was driven by the fact that if you think about the LIGO interferometer, it has something like 100,000 measurement channels. It requires an army of graduate students and postdocs to keep the thing humming. And now some very ambitious uh, person wants to put that up into space and build a space-based detector to see even lower frequency sources, see even farther into the universe. And how do you do that? Like, how do you take the world's most complicated measurement device ever made and you put it in a, in a rocket and you launch it and send it up into space and have it operate itself for you know, more than a decade without any human interaction? Um, and that's a really big challenge. Now, there are a lot of things in the world that we have solved dramatic increases in complexity by moving from a physical, hardwired hardware approach to managing those things with intelligent software. Um, test and measurement equipment has never really been able to be done by a computer. Computers don't have the connections to the real world that, that we need, um, but they also don't have uh, uh, the latency or the speed that maybe you need. 
But there was a new technology that I'd, I'd heard about from a professor visiting at Caltech back in, I think it was 1998. Uh, his name was Hideo Mabuchi. And he had started working with this new type of computer chip called an FPGA. And the way to think about an FPGA, many of your listeners will have heard of this, but the way to think about an FPGA is it's like a computer that can be completely reconfigured rather than designing that CPU and then going out and manufacturing a million of those at a, at a large fab in, uh, that, that Intel owns. An FPGA is kind of like a blank slate that can be completely reconfigured and rewired in a fraction of a second. Um, and it doesn't run an operating system. It doesn't have to check, you know, does the, did somebody move the mouse? Do I have to check my USB connection? Um, it's very deterministic. And so it seemed like a very interesting platform to maybe take the best of the world of computers and the best of the world of, of hardware and merge those two together to get something which is potentially greater than some of the parts and, and really can replace a large swathe of, of the conventional way that we do uh, test and measurement. You know, we have oscilloscopes for measuring voltage in the time domain. We have spectrum analyzers for measuring the frequency domain. We have signal generators for generating signals. We have lock-in amplifiers for detecting tiny signals. There's really uh, tens or maybe even more than 100 different types of devices that we need. And what we saw was that the FPGA was a way of maybe consolidating all of the different hardware-based ways of doing these measurements with something a lot more general, a lot more flexible, and a, and a lot more like the way we interact with computers, where we can, you know, we don't need a typewriter and a calculator anymore. We have a computer which can, you know, run a word processor, it can run MATLAB, um, but can also do hundreds of other things that we never even thought of at the time the computer was invented. And and that's really what I think is the 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 change that we're seeing in the test and measurement industry now is it's a move from conventional fixed function boxes to blurring the lines between the physical world and the world of high-performance computing. And so Liquid Instruments Solution um, is called Moku Lab. Um, can you describe this? It's your flagship product. Yeah. So when we started Liquid Instruments, um, you know, we were a bunch of scientific researchers who had built equipment for ourselves. And as a scientist, uh, really, I mean, to be able to publish your work in a, in a high-quality journal, it's really got to be um, world-leading. It's got to be the best, the best in the world, the best that's ever been done. And to do that, you tend to need to really customize the way you make these measurements. You, we tend to build very sophisticated systems, very bespoke systems that uh, we agonize over, over every detail about how our signals are acquired, how they're processed, how they're recorded. Um, and you, you simply can't do that with a, a single piece of conventional equipment. So we had started using FPGAs for the LISA uh, gravitational wave detector, developing uh, a, a measurement system called a phase meter. Um, but in doing that, we, uh, we also realized that, well, we had this phase meter plugged in. We had it was an FPGA-based system. If we wanted to just make a simple measurement of, of, of voltage, we could, we could reconfigure our FPGA to have it run as an oscilloscope or perhaps as a spectrum analyzer. Um, and we noticed that that had a lot of advantages. First of all, it meant we didn't have to go and fight for equipment with the other researchers in the lab where the one spectrum analyzer we had in the lab at the time, we'd have to you know, go and steal it from somebody else's experiment. Um, it also meant that we could 
we could run things remotely. We didn't have to physically plug in or or unplug cables anymore to different boxes. And so we could we could run it from you know the other side of the lab or or the other side of the world if we wanted. Um, and the last thing was that we could really customize the instruments to do exactly what we wanted. If we wanted to change the filter on our lock-in amplifier, for example, we could do that very, very simply by changing some digital coefficients. We didn't have to crack open the, uh, the box, get out a soldering iron to change our PID controller. Um, and so what we found is it allowed us to do an enormous variety of instruments um, with a single device. Um, and we could engineer that device very well because we were going to use it for a lot of things. So we started, uh, we started building these things for ourselves, really. Um, and then we started loaning them out to, to our colleagues around the world. And we noticed that they would never give them back. <laughs> they, would, they would refuse to return them. And we thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. Um, and at the time, we were building it uh, using um, PXI systems. So PXI is the sort of hardware module, modularized system where you can get effectively computer cards, put them in a slot, and build a complex system of interacting machines. Um, the vision for Liquid Instruments has always been, what if instead of hardware modules, we had software modules, but they ran on hardware, they ran on the FPGA. So they're, they're really the best of both worlds. They're software defined, but hardware accelerated with all the advantages that that brings. And if you, you know, look at any trend of how compute power has increased over the years, it's on a pretty steep trajectory. You know, Moore's law has brought humanity a long way and FPGAs are, are, are really tracking that very well. So, you know, what was barely uh, possible today to match conventional equipment, we thought, you know, in five years time, it's going to be an unfair competition. So, so it was really about uh, realizing that, um, that the advantages of this software defined approach to test gave you the flexibility it gave you the scalability, the upgradability, um, and it meant that in in five or ten years' time, it would really probably be the only game in town for building these type of instruments, just because it was improving so quickly. the The thing that that I always have to remind people is that we didn't we didn't choose the FPGA based architecture because of all these flexibility and upgradability advantages. We chose it at the time because it was the only way we could get the performance of the measurement for the Lisa gravitational wave detector that that we knew how to build. Um, so inherently, a, a, a digital approach can be uh, more accurate and more precise in many ways. But it just turned out because of all the other things that had happened around the industry, around computing, around user experience, um, that it just all these things seem to come together in a, in a perfect storm to, to make it a really quite compelling product. So um, yeah, so Moku Lab was our, I guess I would describe it as our minimum viable product, but uh, now what are we, six years later after selling our first Moku Lab where it only had three instruments on it, now uh, those same users who bought it with only three instruments are now running 12 instruments on it uh, without doing anything other than updating an app on an iPad and suddenly they have, they have all these new devices. So I think that's something that we've seen throughout a lot of technology that we have this, this idea now that our technology gets better over time. Uh, that it improves. It, 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 the, with conventional test equipment, it already does everything that it will do at the day that you buy it. And that's just not true of anything that, that, uh, that we make and, and anything that the industry makes that is built around this new software-defined architecture. 
So the technological uh, argument behind Moku Lab sounds really solid. But what about the business side of things? Um, I would imagine that physicists and a lot of other scientists tend to be very conservative when it comes to uh, selecting test and measurement equipment. Was that a challenge? Yes and no. So I think uh, in the beginning, really the, the beginning of the company was myself and my, my team of uh, what were, who were graduate students and postdocs at the time um, started building this thing. Um, we weren't nobodies. We had a, a pretty good reputation around the world. And I think initially people who may have otherwise dismissed us said, you know what, there are some pretty serious people doing this who are, who are putting their, uh, their weight behind it. And if they think it's a good idea, then it's probably worth having a, a second look at. So that really helped us, particularly in the research space in the university market where um, you know, me being a professor in physics at, at the ANU, which is not, a, not, a shab- not too shabby a university, I think we're, we're still ranked as, as the top or, or second top in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, it really helped us. But what we found is, is it really takes all sorts in, in science. There's, there's a lot of people who are, as you described, very conservative, really want to make sure that what they're using is up to snuff and it's, it's been validated you know, time and time again. Um, but I think in general, what I found is that experimental physicists and engineers are a fairly forward-leaning bunch in a technology sense, um, that they are actually willing to, to try out new technologies. They're probably the people in their personal lives who are the first to adopt new technologies amongst their friendship group. Or as a kid, they're probably the, the one who is responsible for programming the VCR clock when it was a blackout. Um, <laughs> and so we did see a large um, number of supporters in the early days that were uh, immediately saw the potential benefits of that approach that we were we were really pushing towards. Saw that you know the first the first attempt was not going to be perfect, was going to have weaknesses, but that on, on balance the strengths outweighed those weaknesses. So, so I think we were we were fairly well rece- received amongst our our peers, um, and uh, and as we push into new markets, we we find that different areas have different appetites for for risk of adoption of technologies. One of the interesting things from a psychology perspective that I didn't expect at all was uh, came as we released new instruments for, for our Moku Lab over time. So as I, as I mentioned, when we first launched, we had three instruments on the device. We had an oscilloscope, a spectrum analyzer, and a, a waveform generator, three fairly ubiquitous instruments that everyone see the benefit of. Um, and once the hardware is out, then our team went to work at building the algorithms and the DSP, the digital signal processing, uh, to implement new instruments. And so we shortly afterwards brought out a phase meter, an arbitrary waveform generator, a PID controller, a lock-in amplifier. And something very odd happened. We were selling the device at the time for $5,000. And we were hearing two very different things. The first thing was... Um, well, I don't use all these instruments, so I, I'd like a discount. So I think it was when we released our seven tickets. <laughs> suddenly, some people thought that it shouldn't be worth five thousand dollars anymore. They should only pay three thousand dollars for it. And then there was another group of people who said, "Oh my goodness, this is just amazing value! Uh, if you're really providing all these instruments for this much, they can't be very good. Um, they, they must all be rubbish." Um, and really, we try to have every instrument we make be compelling on a you know a one-to-one basis with the conventional technology. Um, and so that was a really interesting um, psychological discovery about how people perceive value, how they understand anchor points of pricing. So in the end, what we ended up doing was we made a cheaper version, which had less instruments, and we made a, a more expensive version, which now comes with with 12 instruments. But the hardware was the same. It's really just the differences in the software. And, and that turned out to be 
possibly one of the best decisions we made commercially. And I still um, am sort of surprised to, to think about the, the psychology behind those decisions. But um, I'm sure there are people in, in marketing who have studied this for many, many years and understand it much better than I do. And so these three different versions, um, where do they tend to be used? What, what are the markets and applications? Is the, the sort of the cheapest, simplest version, is that the sort of thing that would be used in an, in an undergraduate lab? So our first product, Moku Lab, was really the, the original product. So it was the one that we made the best one that we could. Uh, we didn't particularly design it for cost. We designed it to be something that we ourselves would love to use. And that's a really great way to design a product because you are the end customer. You design something that you love and you put a lot of TLC into that product. And it, it often has a lot of very special features in there. Um, what we noticed was that uh, a lot of people were using this Moku Lab in undergraduate labs. And it was never really designed to be that. It was far too expensive, far too uh, high performing. They didn't need nanovolts per hertz of noise performance. They they didn't need the 200 megahertz bandwidth that it, that it came with in the FPGA. Um, but they were using it. And they were using it because students really found the, the new way of interacting with this device, which we'd also put a lot of uh, attention into. They found that very engaging, very compelling, and, and honestly, unintimidating, that it, it really... Uh, spoke to the way they interacted with technology. And so it separated the learning of the concepts, which is you know the goal of education, from the understanding of the tool, making the tool as simple as possible. There is a school of thought that says you should learn you know, either what's out in industry today or you should, you know, everybody else had to go through this almost hazing process of learning how this equipment worked back in the in their day and they were damned if they were going to let students off without having that same <laughs> hazing in their education. Um, but what we're finding is that, you know, by the time these students graduate, these are out in industry and this is the future. And so uh, what we're seeing now is, is it's being quite broadly adopted. However, it was far too expensive and we wanted to make a, a much more accessible version of that that had um, all the functionality, in fact, more functionality, but didn't quite need the performance specs that often drove the cost to manufacture the device. So we came out with the Moku Go last year. Um, it costs around $600 now, and it replaces an entire undergraduate benchtop in a typical electrical engineering or a physics lab. And, and that's been a real hit. And that already has sold more Moku Goes than we sold Moku Labs in the history of the company just because it's, it's a far more accessible product. And, and we really see the potential for it to democratize scientific education around the world and hopefully improve the experience that students will then stay in the field longer and go on to, you know, to help humanity in the challenge to develop the scientific and technological uh, solutions that, that we need. Daniel, that, that sounds like a real bargain, $600 for uh, a piece of kit that replaces a number of, of, of different instruments. Uh, uh, is that attractive to your sort of university customers? Definitely. I think um, the price is the first thing that they worry about. Everybody's on tight budgets these days. Um, but I think once we get past that, really for us, it's about making a great experience for students. And that's where I think it really shines at, at, at any price point. Um, and it's one of the most gratifying things that, that we see is that how many, how many students write to us and say, you know, I, I didn't really get it. I didn't really understand it. And, and I certainly didn't enjoy it until, until we started using this, this new way of doing things. So, um, yeah, that's particularly gratifying for me. Um, and, and then on the high end of things, um, you know, the Moku Lab was, was really our first attempt. It was, it was honestly a half a dozen of us in a small lab, small office in ANU who had never really built a commercial product before doing the best we could. And it was uh, a really fun and challenging time. But we've got a lot more uh, experience under our belt now. We're a lot larger. We have a lot more engineering prowess in the team. 
And so also last year, we launched our new flagship product, Moku Pro, which is the way, I guess, the easiest way to understand it is it's the product that we wish we'd been good enough to build in the beginning, <laughs> but it just took us a little bit of time to get there. So it's something that's really pushing up uh, the, really up in the ante, pushing into the industrial space, you know, really competitive with conventional oscilloscopes, high ends, the mid, mid-end oscilloscopes, um, and uh has really shown people, I think, what the future holds. So, the, again, back to this point that FPGAs are getting bigger and bigger over time. With the way that we built Moku Lab, where it's it's either this instrument or that instrument, or maybe it can run a couple of instruments together, it was really just scratching the surface. It's really just um, effectively a one-for-one one replacement of the way that we do test instrumentation today. With the Moku Pro, there's a couple of really interesting things that I think will will the field will really be driven forward by for years to come. The first one is this multi-instrument mode. And now, because the FPGA is 10 times the size of, of the FPGA that we put in our product five years ago, we can do so much more and we can break it up into smaller little chunks. And now instead of having just one instrument running, it can run many instruments at the same time. These instruments can all communicate with each other with the signals being high bandwidth, lossless, low latency signals that never leave the chip. And now it's effectively an alternative to these large PXI or VXI systems that that are really quite ubiquitous in high-end labs and engineering facilities and manufacturing facilities around the world. The second thing that really, I think, opened a lot of people's eyes to how this type of approach can really add a lot is we enabled the users to access the FPGA themselves. So for the first time now, users can program their own instruments entirely from the ground up. And we have some quite simple tools which allow them to do that in a very simple way. In fact, you only need a web browser. There's no software to install. You can build your own instrument from scratch and then having have it running in your lab in the real world in a matter of minutes. And, and that's really opened up people's eyes to... Uh, to to the potential of this type of approach where now everybody can can build exactly the measurement solution that they need. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. And, and to me, that sounds like something that could be useful across the spectrum. I mean, you, you could see, um, you, you know, basing a, a, a teaching lab around that where, where you, you know, you, you get the students to design their own instruments all the way up to, um, you know, people with very specific needs and in research and industry, taking advantage of it. Well, that's a really interesting story, Daniel, about how you've developed um, Liquid Instruments. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Amish. Great to talk to you. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Daniel Shaddock and Morgan Lynch for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, have a listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester speaks with Martina Mikalska at University College London about the antibacterial properties of patterned glass surfaces and how they can be used in medical settings. Andrew also chats with Julian Jones from Imperial College London about bioglass, a material that can heal bones and teeth. Physics World.